you say to a coworker or a neighbor or a friend if they ask you, why are you Christian? Have you ever thought about this? And you might be like, well, my mom and dad were a Christian. Um, everyone I knew kind of was a Christian. I just kind of fell into it. Um, a lot of people, I feel like in the last few years, a lot of my peers are like, I've never really thought about that. And now that I have, I'm deconstructing my faith. Like they've never sat down and had to think about why am I a Christian? And some of them realize they didn't have good answers and they've kind of left their faith altogether. If you're like me though, the answer is so complex and personal. Uh, many times it's hard to make a reasonable response. I hope that my coworkers and neighbors and friends become Christians. But if I don't have good reasons or good answers about why I am a Christian, they probably won't become one. So today, I hope this message helps you and me find better answers for when our friends ask about our faith. Now, 50 years ago, no one was asking this question, right? Nobody was like, so why are you a Christian? Most people were Christians, and so at least in America. And so people didn't wonder why people were Christians. They just accepted it as the norm. People might have asked, like, why are you a Protestant or why are you a Catholic? But they would never think to ask why you were a Christian because being a Christian wasn't strange but normal. Many churches today still operate as if they exist in the culture from 50 years ago instead of operating in the culture today. They assume the culture is still generally Christian and asking the same questions. And guess what? We all know that's not true, right? They're not asking the same questions they were 50 years ago. The world looks dramatically different. Today, being a Christian is not the norm. It is not cool. Announcing you are a Christian often leads to criticism or confusion. When I tell someone I'm a Christian, they're like, oh, you vote that way, huh? You know, they, they, they think I hate certain people. They think I'm about certain things. As the cultural waters around us, around what it means to be a Christian, gets muddier, we must be sure that our reasons for being a Christian are more clear, concise, and reasonable than ever before. It's more important than ever that the church has a compelling reason to exist and that you and I can articulate a compelling reason why we are Christians. There's a pastor I know in Philly. Um, he um, self-published a book called Ask Me Why I'm Not in Church, and he made these T-shirts, and he promoted them in churches. And I like the premise of the book. Like, he encourages churches to skip a Sunday service to serve in the community for a day and wear these T-shirts, Ask Me Why I'm Not in Church. But I, I think the book misses, though, where American culture is at because no one is asking when they see you on a Sunday, I wonder why they're not in church. No one thinks that, right? They're more surprised, they're more curious why anyone would attend church in the first place. No one thinks it's strange today if you don't attend church. They think it's strange if you do attend. So I want to help us today develop reasonable answers to explain why you attend church, why you are a Christian. I want to give us the words to make a compelling case for our Christianity. I hope it's a case so compelling that it'll sway our friends and our neighbors to explore our faith. And if you're just exploring Christianity, you're watching online, you're here, you're just like, man, I'm trying to think about it. I don't know where it I believe yet. I hope this gives you a good overview of what we're actually about and maybe helps push you in the direction towards Jesus. So the first question we have to tackle is, what is a Christian? Before we can ask why I am a Christian, we have to ask, what is a Christian? When Darby and I first moved here um, to the suburbs of Philadelphia, we started meeting people and we're like, God told us to start a church. And they're like, you're crazy. And we're like, a little bit. And people would say, what kind of church? And we would say, a Christian church. And they would say, oh, you're Catholic like me. And we're like, no, we're not, we're not Catholic. But um, when people heard the word Christian, they immediately thought Catholic. Just because two people are using the same word doesn't mean they are saying the same 
things. Just because two people say Christian doesn't mean they're talking about the same thing. The first followers of Jesus weren't even called Christians. They were called disciples. They were apprentices of Jesus' way of life. The movement Jesus started was not called Christianity at the beginning. They were called followers of the way. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, look at some of these examples. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 19.9, and when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples. Acts 22.4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. Acts 24.14, but I admit to you this, I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. Acts 24, 22, but Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off. I know that was a lot of verses, but you can see that this, originally the followers of Jesus were called the way. Christianity is not a belief system, it is a way of life. The early church were called followers of the way because they followed the way Jesus lived and loved. Now, Jesus makes it pretty clear that the benchmark was not becoming a Christian by signing off on a belief system. It was becoming a disciple by submitting, uh, admitting and submitting to the authority that he had to define how we should live and love in our lives. In Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus said, Go everywhere and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I taught you. John 14, 15, if you love me, obey my teachings, Jesus said. So where did the term Christian come from? In Acts 11, verses 25 and 26, it says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he had found him in Antioch, it, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Antioch sits today in what is modern-day Turkey. It was one of the most important cities in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. It, was a, it had sea trade. It had a land-trading route that met in Antioch. It was a rich, prosperous, and growing city. The city stretched over a thousand acres. The ruins of it still exist in Turkey today. And it's here in Antioch, as the teachings of Jesus clashed with the rich Roman culture, that followers of the way were first called Christians. The word Christian was originally not like, today we're just like, I'm a Christian. That's a little bit like calling yourself a slur in the first century. The term Christian, <coughs> sorry about the cough. The term Christian was originally a religious slur, not a title. It literally means little Christ or like baby Christ. That's essentially what it means in Greek. It's an insult from the Roman culture who thought it was madness to model the teachings of a dead pauper who wielded no power, no money, and no influence. The Roman culture despised the teachings of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus were called this slur Christian when they rejected power and wealth and revenge like Jesus had and had taught his followers to in the Sermon on the Mount. To the Romans, to follow a crucified pacifist was a madness worthy, worthy of all kinds of derision. They're like, what kind of psycho would teach to be powerless and to self-sacrifice? These things are stupid, and they were literally mocking people by calling them baby Jesuses, baby Christ. The church started out in a culture 
that did not understand it and was openly hostile to it. To the Romans, power, money, and influence were worthy of honor and respect. Humility and sacrifice were shameful. Loving your enemies was weak. Destroying your enemies was strong. The church, when it started out, was a countercultural community that ended up changing the world. Rome couldn't stop the self-sacrificial love of the early church. Within 300 years, the people they despised, the Christians, the people they ridiculed, had converted the emperor himself. The church always flourishes in an anti-Christian culture. The teachings of Jesus thrive in a culture that's asking, why are you a Christian? Why are you a disciple? So we shouldn't bemoan the fact that America is no longer culturally Christian. We shouldn't shake our hands in despair and be like, oh no, it's the ruin of our faith. Because people think, why would anyone be a Christian? Most Americans were cultural Christians at best, not disciples anyways. They settled for a mental moral map instead of becoming apprentices of Jesus' way of life. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian pastor in the midst of Nazi Germany, he said this, Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ. It would be like saying, I ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich without peanut butter and jelly. It's just bread. That's what he's saying. Christianity without living and loving like Jesus is a Christianity without Jesus at all. In other words, Christianity without the life of Christ is insanity, and yet that's, the, that's exactly the Christianity that most Westerners know. The church is not strongest when we're in power, when we're the ones in charge, when we're the ones making the rules. All the power and the might of the Roman Empire was overthrown by the power of the Holy Spirit, empowering people to answer a simple question. If being a Christian is going to get you killed or ridiculed, why are you a Christian? It wasn't the countercultural things they believed or tweeted or talked about in their Sunday services that toppled the Roman Empire. It was the countercultural way that they loved their neighbors and their enemies. It was their unexpected countercultural response to the question. Why are you a Christian? If the whole empire is against you, if it's going to cost you everything, why are you a Christian? Christians should actually be disciples. In our culture, we have used the term Christian to define someone who practices the Christian religion, but Jesus is looking for disciples, students of the way he lived and loved. Not just people who believe things about him, but people who, because of their belief, behave like he taught and lived. Now, maybe you're just checking out Christianity. One of the biggest barriers uh, for most people is what people do in the name of Christianity. One of the biggest things keeping people away from Jesus is what people who say they are followers of Jesus do in his name that don't reflect him. I hope that you understand not everyone who claims to be a Christian isn't acting and living and loving like Jesus. Not everyone who says they are a Christian truly reflects the teachings of Jesus. And if I had to sum up all my reasons about why I am a Christian— and I have, I could say, dozens of things about why I am a Christian, the resurrection and all the evidences and historical, logical reasons why it could be and seems to be true. But if I had to sum up all my reasons about why am I, I am a Christian, it would all come down to this. It would all come down to Jesus and how uniquely compelling I find him and his life and his teachings to be. And it, just talk to anybody on the street. Even non-religious people find the person of Jesus fascinating. 
Now, I'm going to be honest, I get frustrated a lot of times with Christians. Many times they say and do stupid things. Some of the meanest people I've ever met are Christians. I don't know why that is. Um, Many times when I see a ridiculous post online full of hate or ignorance, I'll click on their profile, and nine out of ten times it seems to be that in their profile is something about them being a Christian in their bio. It, It frustrates me. I get annoyed at the focus of many churches that seem to be about building the biggest buildings and having the flashiest things that seem to have no substance, and people seem to get trampled and forgotten. While all that's true, there's something about Jesus I can't walk away from. Jesus is the most uniquely compelling person, real or fictional, that I've ever encountered or read about. I first heard about Jesus when I was about five or six years old. My mom started taking my sister and I to a brick Baptist church down the street from our house. We didn't have any religious background. My dad was an atheist. And I went to Sunday school, and they started telling me stories about Jesus. And the teacher complained that I ate all the snacks that were supposed to be for all the kids. But I was like, man, free snacks. And I started hearing about this guy, Jesus, for the first time. And they gave me a Bible. Did anybody have one of these old Bibles? And it had like five pictures in it. And then they were like terribly painted, you know, and you would flip through and there was only five pictures and I couldn't read yet, but I would flip through and look at the five pictures of Jesus. And it was like Jesus knocking on a door, Jesus healing the sick, Jesus beating death to walk out alive. And uh, this guy just fascinated me. I was like, Jesus, who is this guy? He seems so interesting, so fascinating. Everything I heard about Jesus captured my imagination. Every story I heard fascinated me in my childish brain. I thought if Jesus was choosing teams for like a cosmic kickball team, I'd always want to be on Team Jesus, you know? I wanted to be on his team no matter what. It's now been 35 years later, and I'm still fascinated with the person of Jesus. Even when the church disappoints me, even when Christians disappoint me, even when my own discipleship disappoints me, I keep coming back to the person of Jesus. I'm still a Christian, as my peers keep saying, you know what, I don't believe anything, or I'm really into crystals now, or, you know, whatever they're saying. Um, I have friends going in all kinds of different directions. I keep coming back to Jesus. I want to be on Team Jesus, even when people wearing his jersey keep saying and doing embarrassing things. So here's, quickly, four reasons that I find Jesus uniquely compelling. I really had a long list. I could have just gone on and on about reasons about why I find Jesus uniquely compelling, but here's four. Number one, Jesus asked questions instead of shoving answers down people's throat. Let me show you one example, but there are dozens in the Gospels. Luke 18, verses 18 through 19. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. No one is good except God alone. Now, this man is asking the big question, right? He's like, what can I do to have eternal life? And we expect Jesus to say something like this. Well, you need to believe this. This is the Apostles' Creed. Make sure you believe everything in here. Or we expect him to say, you need to pray this prayer, accept, believe, and confess, you know. Or you expect him to say something like, follow me, become my disciples. He doesn't do any of that, though. Instead, he asks a question. Why do you call me good? Jesus never force-fed people the right answers. He was never trying to indoctrinate people into the right belief. He invited them to ask the right questions. Jesus apparently has so much respect for human free will and agency that he doesn't try to coerce or manipulate or influence your decision. Instead, he helps you ask the right questions so you can get to the answer on your own. 
right now if you're asking questions about man why am i a christian do i really believe this do i really want to know this jesus is glad you're asking those questions he wants you to ask questions and he's a god who is patient as you look for answers the church is often known more for what it is against and what it is for maybe that would change if like jesus we were quicker quicker to ask people questions instead of shoving answers down people's throats jesus wants you to find answers not memorize answers he wants you to experience who he says he is and what he says is true not because someone told you but because you tasted it you saw it for yourself because it resonates with reality, with your story. If the teachings of Jesus don't resonate with reality, it means they aren't true and you shouldn't believe them. But I have found after 40 years of life that the teachings of Jesus do resonate with reality. In my deepest, darkest moment of grief and in my greatest moment of joy, Jesus and his teachings ring true. Jesus never seems to be in a rush to get someone to a spiritual destination, but is patient with them where they are at in their spiritual journey. I'm in a bigger hurry than Jesus is most of the time. He's content right where I am, but he's lovingly pushing me forward to become more like him. I love this about him. Keep asking spiritual questions. I think if you keep asking questions and you genuinely seek answers, you will find Jesus is the ultimate answer to everything you're searching for. Number two, second reason I find Jesus uniquely compelling. Jesus always annoyed the most religious people in the room and stood up for the spiritual outcast. In John 8, verses 3 through 7, it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and made her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And they asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. And Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. And Jesus, he's like, he's so clever. As a rabbi, Jesus needed the approval and support of the religious elites. Like if he was going to make it as a traveling rabbi, he really needed to impress these people. But instead, he never seemed to worry about who he was impressing. Mark Batterson, a pastor in D.C., had this quote I loved. It just stayed with me. He said, the most impressive thing in life is when you meet someone who isn't trying to be impressive. Have you ever been around those people and they're so insecure, they're constantly trying to impress you with how great they are because they're trying to convince themselves that they're great when they really don't think they are? It's just so relaxing to be around somebody who's like, here's who I am. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not trying to put on a show. I'm not trying to put on a mask. This is just who I am. Those people make you feel at peace. Jesus didn't walk into a room and identify who had money and influence and figure out how to buddy up to them. He identified who was hurting, and he thought about how he could help them. Jesus sided with the spiritual outcast, even if it meant offending the religious elites who had power and money and influence. He always stood up for the weakest person in the room. And I, I just love that about Jesus. Read his story, his life story in the Gospels, and you'll see over and over again, Jesus doesn't look at the person with money and power and say, huh, that's where I need to be. He looks at the person who's hurting, the weakest person in the room, and says, that's where I need to be. Third reason I find Jesus uniquely compelling Jesus claimed to be the clearest picture of what Yahweh, the one true God, was like, and yet he showed up in a small town to a poor family and worked a physically exhausting job. This is not how I would expect God to show up on our planet. 
In John 1, verses 45 through 46, it says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael was like, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see, Philip answered. You'll be surprised. Um, Nazareth was a backwoods, hill, count, hill country town of just a few hundred people. This would be like us being like, anything good come out of Kensington? Or really more realistic, can anything good come out of Jersey? No, nothing good. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding people from Jersey. It's a joke. The one, a couple years ago, I was making all these jokes about Jersey, and somebody wrote in and said they were really upset because they were listening from Jersey, and I was like, I'm so sorry. Like, there are good people in Jersey. Um, Jesus told his followers, though, if you've seen me, you've looked directly at God the Father. And this was Jesus, God, Born in a cave that housed animals, not born in a palace. He apprenticed in a physically exhausting job of wood and stone carving. He grew up in a tiny village of a few hundred people in a remote mountain community far from Jerusalem, far from influence, far from riches, far from power. God in human form did not show up in power and privilege, but in poverty. I find that interesting, compelling, unique. If you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, not in a rich or an educated home, guess what? You're more in tune with what God says he is like than someone in power and wealth and influence. People complain, why doesn't God show up as a hundred-foot giant wielding superpowers and just convince me that he's God? But somehow I find it more compelling that when he did show up, he showed up as a nobody. God didn't, Jesus didn't shoot lightning or fly. He freed captives and healed sick people. God seems more interested in wielding power that heals and helps rather than power that impresses and convinces. I find this really compelling that the clearest picture of God is this physical laborer from the backwoods of Palestine. And four, the last one today, Jesus always partied with the wrong crowd. Uh, one of the common complaints about Jesus when he was on earth was that he was eating and drinking with the wrong people. He was sharing meals and having party, but he was inviting the wrong people to the party. Something about a God who parties with the wrong crowd makes Jesus super compelling to me. Maybe it's just a little punk rock, but I'm like, yeah, look at Jesus. He's hanging out with the wrong crowd, you know? He's not hanging out with the religious elites. He's hanging out with the people they rejected. Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13, it says, While Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why would your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He threw some Bible back in their face, and he says, you know the Bible so well, go figure out what this verse means, because you're missing it. Jesus didn't worry about his reputation. He actively pursued the people that the religious elites had sidelined. Jesus even told one of his short stories, his parables about this in Luke 14. He said there was a man, and he prepared a great feast. It was like the greatest, most amazing feast ever, and... All these people should have been excited about attending the party. He handed out invitations, and they all made excuses not to come. So instead, the man went out and invited every homeless person and beggar, every wretched person off the streets. And, God, and Jesus said, that is what God is like. Jesus is a God of spiritual beggars. Dallas Willard said, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritual bankrupt the deprived and the deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion, when the kingdom of heaven comes upon them, they are 
blessed. Those are the people that Jesus says, hey, line up. You're first in line. You haven't been first in line for anything in life, but you're first in line for my kingdom. Those are the kind of people Jesus made a priority, and I love that about him. It's so unexpected. It's so countercultural. It's so different than how I would think or act. I think Jesus was the most compelling person to ever live, and I believe the world would be a better place if everyone became a student of the way he lived and loved. I think your life and my life will be the best possible life we can live if we become students of Jesus. I think your coworkers and your neighbors and your family and your friends could have everything in their world changed for the better if someone would give them a compelling reason to check out Jesus, if someone could tell them a compelling reason that they, why they are a Christian. And God has put you and me in their lives to give them that compelling reason. So what do we do with all this? If someone asks you, why are you a Christian? Why are you a disciple of Jesus? Tell them it is because of how uniquely compelling Jesus is. I've told you some of the reasons I think Jesus is uniquely compelling. Why do you think he's uniquely compelling? Think about that. Come up with some reasons. Say, here's the uniquely compelling reasons about Jesus. Take time to remind yourself about what Jesus was like. Read one of the Gospels this week. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just sit down, read through it. Take, it doesn't take too long, really, to read through a whole one. Maybe break it up a few times, but try to read as much together as you can. As you read, what do you find compelling about him? How he teaches, what he does, who he is. And if you're a student of Jesus, we should model the behavior that made him so compelling to others. People become curious about our Christ when we live and love like he did. Ask more questions instead of shoving answers down people's throats. Hang out with the people religion rejects. Annoy the religious elites and protect spiritual outcasts. Be like Jesus. I think then the world will find our Christianity compelling because then our Christianity will look like our Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming and living and dying, for being resurrected and ascending. It is because of you that I'm a Christian. I couldn't do it without your sacrifice. I couldn't do it without your spirit. But when it comes down to it, why I chose to be a Christian was because I find you so compelling, and I still find you so compelling today. God, I pray that you will continue to spark my imagination, that I will continue to long and run after becoming like you, knowing you more, being with you, becoming like you, and doing what you did. And God, I pray that you